First things first this episode, I absolutely need to thank my listeners, all of you who have downloaded episodes and stuck with the show up to this point. I started this podcast because of a conversation I had with a professor I studied under at the University of New Hampshire as an undergraduate, who told me that to be able to do both philosophy and science, I would need to get creative. Besides reading philosophy in the confines of my home, I needed to start putting myself out there, actually investigating and talking about the sorts of philosophical questions that really intrigued me. And since my favorite sort of philosophical discussions are those centered around the truth of a scientific claim, or what the idea of truth when it pertains to scientific claims, or facts even means, which inevitably led me to questions about the paranormal and fringe sorts of ideas, becoming involved in podcasting and writing about these topics seemed like the obvious outlet I was looking for. But that outlet wouldn't be possible without you all actually listening. Otherwise, I may as well still be complaining to my fiancé while watching Ancient Aliens. Although I do seem to still do that a pretty significant amount of the time. Nothing brings me more pleasure than seeing an email or tweet from a listener. And I hope to receive more of them as these episodes continue. I also need to thank the guys at Astonishing Legends again for being such absolutely huge inspirations and helps when it comes to running this podcast. I started out in podcasting as a member of the Astonishing Research Corps, and I encourage everyone listening to this show to also listen to their podcast, which takes a different sort of approach to the paranormal than the one I take, but one that I think is still fair to the facts of the case. Continuing to help them with scientific questions and just general research, and being a member of the Astonishing Research Corps, has become one of the highlights of my days, and I hope that you can all listen and enjoy the hard work the team puts in. (laughs) Now that all that sappy stuff is out of the way, let's get down to the episode. With nuclear disasters like Fukushima and Chernobyl still fresh in the public's mind, and comic book movies showing normal humans becoming intensely strong and green or sticky and arachnid with the application of gamma rays or the bite of a radioactive bug, myths and falsehoods about nuclear power seem to spread like wildfire throughout the public. Full disclosure, some of my scientific research did at the very beginning of my career in graduate school focus on the collection of nuclear waste, so I am somewhat biased towards the idea that nuclear power must be more significantly regulated and controlled. However, that is not to say that I am against nuclear power. On the contrary, I believe nuclear can act as a safe and renewable fuel source for the future. Especially with advances in reactor design leading to the use of different fuel sources and nuclear waste disposal and capture methods becoming more efficient and environmentally benign. Regardless of my views on nuclear power, some of the myths and public perceptions on nuclear energy and specifically what nuclear contamination can do to a person, plant, or animal, are at their root magical claims. Discounting what the sorts of energy or particles nuclear fission generates can actually do to a thing, and instead giving us ideas that somehow this piece of rock can turn things into 50-foot monsters, or give us superhuman strength and speed, or turn us into blathering monsters with crispy radioactive skin, This episode is focused on the myths surrounding nuclear energy and radioactivity, looking at some of the historical fears nuclear power and energy have generated, as well as some of the absolutely insane ways we have historically and even currently used radioactive objects, what they were supposed to do, and what they most likely would have actually caused. 
As of finishing up the writing of this episode, this thing has become something of a primer on radioactivity generally. So maybe after this episode, you can bore your friends with the finer points of nuclear fission. That's what I do, and I'll tell you, it is a huge hit at parties. Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast, episode 6, Attack of the 50-Foot Giant Monster! War. War never changes. Or at least that is according to every starting character from the Fallout series by Bethesda Softworks. One of the best sandbox-style video games of our time! In the series, nuclear energy is used as a source of power for the world, leading to robots in the home, no need for fossil fuels or global warming, and other sorts of 1950s-style technological advancements. Of course, it also eventually leads to complete nuclear annihilation and the creation of a hellscape where nuclear fallout has led to the creation of giant monster animals, 10-foot-tall Hulk-like super mutants, and radioactively damaged humans called ghouls, who are basically immune to aging and can at times become zombie-like monsters. So, you know, a nuanced and informative take on the nuclear power question. (laughs) This game draws from a number of what were once really popular ideas of the effects of a nuclear explosion. Some that we still sort of have today. One of the most hilarious of these is this idea that after nuclear fallout, the resulting radiation will cause monsters to swell to ginormous size. With 100 foot tall killer ants, or killer tomatoes taking over the earth. Of course, the most famous example of this sort of creature is Godzilla and his cohorts, who are at times both a metaphor for the damage of nuclear weapons but also sometimes said to have been caused by nuclear testing, where the resulting mutation somehow led to the creation of this giant monster. Others include that the resulting radiation damage could somehow mutate our DNA to create new races of humans. For instance, super mutants or ghouls in the Fallout series. Or superheroes or zombies or all kinds of other monsters in other media. Some other myths some other myths include the idea that nuclear fallout will destroy all plant life and leave behind a barren hellscape. And the other is that you can take some kind of medicine to effectively reduce the dosage of radiation on your body, um, just like by a simple take of a pill or something. Another really cool aspect of the in-game lore is that the world of Fallout has made use of nuclear power in a more widespread way than in our current world leading to radiation being used in individual homes to power things like robots or rocket cars. And this isn't really all that far-fetched. Back in the early days of radiation research, for instance, companies tried to find all sorts of ways to make use of this strange new branch of physics. The first scientist to really research radioactive decay and make significant headway is one of my favorites, Marie Curie. Working off the results of William Röntgen, who discovered x-rays in 1895, and Henry Burkirel, who soon after found that uranium salts emitted something with similar properties to the x-ray. Marie Curie found that these samples seemed to generate an electric charge in the surrounding air, and that the mass of the uranium salt was the determinant factor in how much charge was generated. This suggested to her that it was the uranium atom itself that generated the electric charge, somehow by interacting with the surrounding air molecules. 
Further research into other uranium-containing and seemingly active ores led her to discover the elements thorium, radium, and polonium, publishing the foundational works on radioactivity, and in fact coining the term radioactive to describe something that seemed to generate the source of electric discharge found for the uranium salts. Her work led to the means for Rutherford and others to begin probing the structure of the atomic nucleus, leading directly to modern physics and our entire world. Marie Curie, to put it bluntly, was a absolute boss. After the discovery of these radioactive salts that seemed to generate an electric charge in the air, people started making use of them in different sorts of household products. These radioactive salts were particularly interesting because they seemed to showcase properties that were not observed in any other materials known up to that time. Although, of course, scientists wouldn't really understand why these properties existed until the 1950s, and even worse, had no idea of the long-term health effects that radiation had on the human body until the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in World War II. Interestingly, William Röntgen, the guy that discovered x-rays, actually did publish a study where he subjected his fingers to intense x-rays, leading to burns which eventually healed. Marie Curie herself died from a plastic anemia caused by radiation, and her notebooks are still so radioactive that they are kept under lock and key in a special lead-lined container. To understand what makes these materials have such interesting properties, and to actually get to what some of these properties are, we first need to understand what seems to cause things to become radioactive, and what this radioactivity means for the material and the surrounding materials around it. When we say that an atom is radioactive, what we mean is that the atom will spontaneously break apart in some way, releasing parts of its original atomic structure until eventually it stops changing. This breaking apart is known as atomic decay, and it seems to occur because the original nucleus of the radioactive atom has a significant difference in the amount of protons and neutrons that make up the atom, causing the nucleus to become unstable. An atomic nucleus is normally made up of a pretty close to even amount of protons, or positively charged particles, and neutrons, which are neutrally charged and primarily add mass, and force to the nucleus. What I mean by force here is kind of like the glue that holds the atom together. Whizzing around this nucleus of the atom is then the electron cloud, which is negatively charged, with each electron having the exact opposite charge to a single proton. However, electrons are basically massless. Now, the atoms we find in nature are categorized by the number of protons and neutrons that are present in the atomic nucleus, with the identity or name of the atom being determined by the number of protons. So a carbon atom always has six protons, an oxygen always has eight, and so on. However, the number of neutrons in the atom can vary and in carbon can actually vary from between 2 to 16. These carbon atoms with different numbers of neutrons are known as isotopes, and are labeled as the name of the atom determined by proton number, then the total number of protons and neutrons in the isotope. So for instance, the carbon with 6 protons and 6 neutrons is known as carbon-12. 
Now, we don't really know what is going on inside of a nucleus to make it unstable and decay. But we do know that certain isotopes, and usually those that have a large mismatch in the number of protons and neutrons, are radioactive. This is actually how radiocarbon dating works, with the amount of carbon-14 left in a material allowing us to measure how long the surrounding rock or material in the ground is likely to have been around. If there is a mismatch in the amount of neutrons and protons in an atom's nucleus, the nucleus will be unstable and will attempt to form into the nearest, most stable atomic state that it can have. Basically, what happens is the atom will spontaneously release some subatomic particle from its structure to become a more stable isotope in a process known as nuclear fission. F-I-S-S-I-O-N. The subatomic particle released determines the type of radiation we have. So, for instance, if a proton is released, it is described as alpha decay, while if an electron is released, it is known as beta decay. Along with these decay products is other energy, released as gamma radiation, which is very high-energy photoelectric waves. Other sorts of radiation include the release of other subatomic particles, such as neutrons. Gamma radiation is the kind that created the Incredible Hulk, <laughs> and it is the interaction of these released particles with surrounding material that make radioactivity so dangerous. In particular, it is the type of particle or energy released that can basically tell you how dangerous radiation is. Alpha particles are protons, and so are pretty heavy and large, and can be blocked by a very thin layer of atoms. And so you would be safe from alpha decay happening outside your home if you were inside of it. On the other hand, beta particles, or electrons, or gamma energy cannot be blocked by conventional sorts of means, and so require things like thick lead walls to protect against them. Another factor in how dangerous a nuclear material is, is the time it takes for the material to lose half of its mass through radioactive decay, a time we know as the half-life of the material. Things with very short half-lives decay so quickly that they aren't around long enough to provide enough particles to surrounding materials to cause any significant damage. However, things that decay over a long period of time can cause harm to the people or environment that come into contact with it. Materials that release a lot of gamma energy or beta particles are particularly dangerous, as I said above, but can be even more dangerous if the half-life of that particular isotope is long-lived. This is the particular issue with strontium and cesium radioactive wastes, which can have very long half-lives and produce beta and gamma radiation. Strontium and cesium are the primary waste products that are dangerous in areas where nuclear contamination occurs, since they are produced by the decay of uranium and plutonium. Making these elements even more dangerous is the fact that they are extremely similar chemically to some elements that are very common in the body. Strontium acts chemically like calcium, and in fact adults who live near the radioactive tests during the first half of the 20th century can have enough strontium in their bones that their teeth will glow under black light. Cesium, on the other hand, acts chemically similar to potassium, and so will accumulate in the muscle tissue of organisms that ingest it, making it especially easy to transfer through the eating of plant or animal matter. 
What made radioactive materials so common in the items of the 40s and 50s, however, is the radioactive glow that is caused by radioluminescence. You can't have an episode on nuclear radiation without a Simpsons reference, so here it is. The green glow that the radioactive things in the Simpsons give off is actually a real phenomena, although it will change colors depending on the materials giving off the glow. And usually you need to add another luminescent material, such as phosphor, to the mixture to really get the clear sort of green glows as seen in The Simpsons. In fact, the carbon rod that Homer carries around in The Simpsons and that isotopic rod that he carries around that glows green would actually, in the real world, probably glow a bright blue, which is what is actually seen at nuclear power plants today. This glow isn't caused by the radioactive decay of an atom per se. Rather, it is caused by the effect that the radioactive decay products, the alpha or beta particles or gamma radiation, have on a surrounding atom. When a radioactive particle collides with another atom, a number of different things can happen. First, if the radioactive particle is moving very quickly, and so has a lot of energy, it is possible that it will collide with another atom and cause that atomic nucleus to become unstable. This will in turn cause that atom to become radioactive, leading to a potentially continuous chain reaction. This is basically what happens in a nuclear reactor, where the nuclear mass is set up in such a way as to reach a steady state of nuclear output, with each atom creating enough particles to disturb surrounding atoms, which in turn will disturb surrounding atoms, and so on. This is what nuclear engineers call a critical mass, where the amount of radioactive material is enough for the reaction to run on its own with little input from engineers. Small tangent, but I love in films with nuclear reactors going crazy or exploding where the people scream stuff like, It's reached a critical mass! Run! Because what they are basically saying is, It's running exactly as designed! It would be like creating a movie where you jump out of your car when it's idling, and then it spontaneously just explodes. What is really dangerous is when the reaction goes runaway at a point over the critical mass, resulting in quick overheating and potential meltdown such as what happened at Fukushima. Anyways, the other option is that the particles or gamma radiation will be so low energy that they cannot damage the surrounding atom's nucleus. However, the radiation will still have some effect. What happens in this case is that the added energy will cause the electrons of the atom to go into an excited state. Basically, electrons can move around only in certain areas surrounding an atomic nucleus, and these are determined by the average energy of the electrons in that particular area. After a little while, these electrons will then spontaneously become de-excited and move back into their original position, but the energy that they took in will be released as some sort of light. And with certain mixtures of radioactive material and phosphorus, the light that is released is on the visible spectrum, resulting in a green or blue glow that we can actually see. Some of the materials made from radioactive elements are really pretty fascinating. One example that I have a small collection of, or should I say my fiancé has a small collection of, is radioactive glass, also known as Vaseline glass. 
which contains enough uranium that it glows with an eerie green light when placed under black light, but not enough to actually cause any significant harm to those in the household. The black light in this case provides enough energy to the material that it will become radioluminescent. In other cases, though, materials were used with enough radioactive material that they could glow spontaneously. One famous example of this are radioactive clock faces, and in particular those of the Radium Girls. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. The Radium Girls worked in a watchmaking factory in Orange, New Jersey, and were tasked with painting watch faces with radium-containing paint. Since they were told that the paint was non-toxic and safe, they ingested huge amounts of radium by licking their paintbrushes to give them fine points, and by just generally not wearing protective equipment around the deadly, deadly radium. The radium in the paint caused many of the workers to die of radiation poisoning, in particular due to anemia, such as what killed Marie Curie, and a condition known as radium jaw, where their bones became so brittle due to the accumulation of radium that it caused necrosis. Even the guy that invented radium paint ended up dying due to radiation poisoning. And eventually the company that produced the radioactive watch faces agreed to pay for all of the medical expenses of the radium girls, provide an annual payment of $800 to them, which at the time in 1920 was quite a bit of money, as well as a single one-time payment of $10,000. This sort of brings us to another kind of interesting tangent. I wonder, that so that $10,000 that they paid the Radium Girls, it makes you wonder if that was how much their lives were worth to the company, right? They paid them $10,000, then $800 every year, plus providing for their medical expenses. So let's say in total, they may have paid them $100,000. Is that the worth of a single life? There's some really interesting philosophical questions there, right? With insurance generally. Like, is the worth of your life merely the output you can have in your lifetime in terms of economic output? Or, you know, how do you actually how do you actually put a price on what the Radium Girls meant to their loved ones or to the people around them or their community? It's really a pretty crazy sort of thing when you think about it. Other radioactive materials include cosmetics, particularly the line known as Tholradia which contained thorium chloride and radium bromide. The materials were supposed to give you a nice glow to your skin, helping to stop aging by the energy of the radiation, and overall just being comically dangerous. 
There were also radium-laced condoms, eye drops, wool for sweaters, suppositories, and hand cream, with the tagline of the hand cream being, takes off everything but the skin. I think my personal favorite, though, has to be the condoms. Like, what is the thinking there? Would they give off radioactive heat? Give off a nice radioluminescent glow? Regardless of the hilarious sorts of radiation-induced genital issues that probably came up at the time, it is clear that the world of Fallout actually isn't all that far off from our own, at least during the time of the games diverging from actual history. We did in fact use radioactive sorts of materials in all kinds of strange ways, and so it isn't all that hard to see that maybe, if the world hadn't had the sorts of small-scale personal radioactive disasters, such as the Radium Girls, or worldwide radioactive cataclysms, such as the dropping of the atomic bombs, that maybe we would have continued to use radioactive materials in increasingly safe and hopefully more sensible ways. Even though we've made use of radioactive materials in a number of really weird ways, and have even had a number of meltdowns and disasters such as Fukushima and Chernobyl, we still don't have any type of giant mutated lizard gods three-eyed fish, or superheroes. What's the deal? Have TV shows and movies let us down once again? To understand why we thought that maybe giant monsters or strange new mutations could result from exposure to radiation, we first need to understand how radiation actually damages biological material. And it is really fascinating, but also pretty scary. I would suggest everyone grab a bottle of sunscreen before we start the next section here, because you may want to use it by the time we're finished. As we said earlier, radioactivity involves the decay of an unstable nucleus through the expulsion of protons, aka alpha particles, electrons, aka beta particles, other particles such as neutrons, or high-energy electromagnetic waves known as gamma radiation. The damage done by these sorts of radioactive decay are all different, of course, and so each require a different discussion about what happens to material impacted by them. Alpha particles are pretty heavy, being protons, and so need to be very close to the material they are damaging to cause any significant issues. Generally what occurs, however, is that the alpha particle will hit a surrounding material and cause what is known as a knock-on effect. Imagine it like taking the first breaking shot in a billiards game. The alpha particle is the cue ball, and the nucleus of another atom are the numbered balls. Depending on the energy of the cue ball, represented here by its speed, and the position where it hits the nucleus, the numbered balls, you can cause other billiard balls to fly off in other directions, which would be the nucleus becoming unstable and becoming radioactive itself. If these balls have enough energy, they can in turn potentially interact with another set of numbered balls and so on and so on. However, since alpha particles are very heavy, it is usually unlikely that this sort of damage will propagate in this way, and instead alpha particles are usually quite harmless. In fact, it's often said in chemistry classes that alpha particles can be stopped by a sheet of aluminum foil or even paper. So maybe those guys in the tinfoil hats aren't so crazy after all. On the other hand, if ingested, an alpha particle source can be insanely deadly, since these alpha particles are heavy enough to cause significant damage to biomolecules including DNA. 
This can lead to what are almost like internal sunburns, the shutdown of internal organs, and increased brittleness in bones or connective tissue. Beta particles and gamma radiation, on the other hand, can cause significant damage to other materials from outside the body as well as inside, because they are basically adding energy to these atoms. In the case of beta particles, this energy is added as electrons, while in gamma radiation, it is as high-energy photons. This energy can in turn excite electrons to the point of being removed or added to other atoms, leading to the breaking of chemical bonds, and in biological materials, damage to the DNA of an organism. This sort of radiation that is strong enough to cause the ionization of electrons is known as ionizing radiation, whereas lower sorts of radiation, such as that from cell phones or TV sets, are simply known as non-ionizing radiation. Sunburn is basically this sort of damage, but on a much lower scale, with UV light being a much lower energy photon than that which we call gamma radiation, but still enough to ionize some of the chemicals present in skin cells. This means that Bruce Banner is more likely to have ended up in a hospital bed with severe burns to his body than as a superhero. <laughs> in fact, the sunscreen we all wear contains zinc, and other metal species specifically as a blocker to this UV radiation, since the zinc or titanium have a dense enough nucleus to absorb this radiation without causing damage to underlying biological tissues. So radiation can cause DNA damage, but can it mutate DNA in such a way to cause giant animals or superpowers? Well, when we talk about DNA damage, what we mean is that the DNA strand is actually broken apart or changed chemically, resulting in significantly disturbed cellular activities and eventually cell death if the cellular mechanism for DNA repair cannot occur. And even when repair can in fact occur, it is possible for these repairs to result in errors on the DNA strand, resulting in runaway cellular growth, also known as cancer. I guess with this mechanism, it is extremely unlikely, like almost less than a millionth of a percent, but still possible for a single beneficial mutation to occur. However, since these mutations occur randomly, and since the sorts of mutations required for giant growth or super strength would require the changing of a huge number of different pieces of DNA all in the correct sequence, it is impossible to imagine that the sorts of huge creatures we see in Godzilla, or the horror films of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, or the superheroes we see in comics, to result from radiation-induced damage. But what about the ghouls in Fallout? Ghouls are basically human beings that have had significant radiation damage, resulting in them appearing basically like glowing zombies. But one of the most interesting features of ghouls is that they are immortal, and in the game, they are actually all left over from the nuclear disaster that created the Fallout world. Does this make any sense? We know that radiation damage can create runaway cellular growth in the form of cancer, but could it induce a sort of immortal state as found in certain cellular lines used for biotechnology? First off, it is possible to create an immortal cell line in the lab the most famous of which are HeLa cells, named for Henrietta Lacks. 
These cells have been mutated in such a way that they do not die after a certain number of replications and don't change significantly from that point forward. Now, when cells replicate, a very interesting thing happens to the ends of our chromosomes, also known as telomeres. These telomeres can't be actually replicated after each cell division, and so parts of the telomere end become chopped off. Now, after a certain amount of replications, the telomere end is broken away and so can no longer protect the underlying chromosome that contains our genetic information. So, as the cells replicate further, they start to die off, not able to perform their actual functions. In immortal cell lines, the cells have been mutated in such a way that these telomeres are not shortened with each repeating cell division. The shortening of telomeres has been heavily implicated in the physical changes that occur with aging and the onset of aging-related diseases. However, again, in cancer and in immortal cell lines, these telomeres do not shorten upon cell replication due to a number of different sorts of factors. Now, I just want to state for the record, I am not a biologist. <laughs> my understanding of telomeres and all of this is shaky at best, and so listeners should take my opinions on this with a huge grain of salt. Find a friend who is a biologist, or a nurse, or a doctor, and ask them to explain telomeres and DNA replication to you, so that you can make your own opinions on this section of the show. That being said, I think this idea of cell immortality could maybe, sort of, potentially make the idea of radiation-induced immortality in certain organisms not as impossible as it would appear at first glance. Now obviously, it suffers from the same problems as all the other radiation-induced mutations discussed above including the idea that this would require every cell in the body to undergo this change at the same general time, and the telomere changes wouldn't just cause cancer to overtake the body, or that the person who undergoes the radiation damage wouldn't just die outright from the extreme stress that this would put on their body. But I think it's an interesting question for sure, and one that I think makes this idea of radioactive ghouls far more probable, at least, than Godzilla. Although that isn't saying much. This also raises all sorts of interesting philosophical questions. For instance, if we could keep the body alive indefinitely, would our consciousness also stick around? Forget keeping the biological body alive. What if we could just put our brains into a box where it would be kept alive through electrical impulse and signaling, or a robotic body for that matter? Do ghouls who do not age have any sort of memory problems? Or because their brains are also being kept refreshed by their lack of telomere shortening, do they have even stronger brain power than the normal, non-irradiated human? Am I thinking too much about this video game? One other very common radiation myth is that nuclear fallout would cause the complete destruction of all plant and animal life on the planet, which I guess could happen with a powerful enough explosion and high nuclear contamination. But just Google pictures of what Chernobyl looks like today, and you will be flabbergasted by just how non-irradiated it appears. Obviously, the effect of this disaster has been horrendous in terms of the mutations caused to the people living in the region, to the animals present, and the leftover radioactive iodine and other chemical species found within the plant and animal tissues, causing the nuclear waste to propagate to other species 
and making the area completely uninhabitable to this day. Hiroshima and Nagasaki, on the other hand, had a relatively small amount of radioactive waste generated, with the primary destruction caused by the explosive blast as opposed to the ensuing nuclear fallout. But still, mutations and birth defects were rampant after the war. It is clear that nuclear waste can therefore create the sort of conditions found in the world of these nuclear apocalypse movies and games, although maybe in ways that are unexpected. As opposed to the trees becoming barren or glowing, it is more likely that they contain unseen amounts of radioactive species, which upon ingestion would cause cellular damage within the body, and eventually radiation poisoning or cancer. So while a forested region may not look significantly different 200 years after nuclear blast, it would certainly be a much more dangerous place for a human to live. Radiation is a serious concern, but not the kind that can create monsters or supervillains. I think in many ways our fear of radioactive materials and the sorts of crazy things that it can cause are very similar to the sorts of fears we used to have about alchemy or witchcraft. Someone in a lab, far away from your home, working on things that maybe you don't fully understand, are seemingly changing the properties of organisms and matter and... In some cases, even changing things from, for instance, uranium to iron or lead. And if they can possibly change the structure of the atom in such a way, then could they not also change the structure of our bodies or of the very fabric of nature around us? In many ways, I think that these myths about radiation will only go away when we start to really use these sorts of materials in our everyday lives in ways that are safe. And of course, it's taken about, you know, a hundred-ish years for us to finally get a grasp on what kind of damage these things can do. But I have a feeling that in another hundred years, radiation and materials that are radioactive will become a much bigger part of our everyday lives. What's really fascinating, too, is something that we haven't really touched on, but something that many nuclear scientists are extremely interested in. If you look at the periodic table, you'll notice that as atoms get heavier, or as they start to have more and more protons, they tend to become more radioactive, or more likely to be radioactive. So things at the low end of the spectrum, like carbon or oxygen, usually aren't radioactive, but things that are very heavy, like uranium, polonium, radium, whatever, are. This is because of that mismatch in protons and neutrons that we discussed earlier. But does this require that all the atoms we know of currently are going to be the only ones that are really kind of useful for our chemistry? In other words, will all atoms that we discover from this point forward be radioactive almost by definition because of the huge number of protons and neutrons that we'll find in their isotopes? And if that's the case then does it make any sense that we find UFOs or other sorts of alien technology that might contain materials or elements that we can't describe? Interestingly, scientists now think that there might be something called the Island of Stability that's present in atoms with higher protons than we can currently make in the lab. This would occur just because of statistics. If we look at the fraction of protons to neutrons present in the atoms that we currently know of, 
that fraction seems to go down if we're doing protons over neutrons. So in other words, there's more neutrons than there are protons as elements get heavier. And like we said, that causes instability and therefore radioactive decay. Interestingly, though, we notice that with increasing proton mass, this fraction seems to get closer to unity, or one, as we get heavier and heavier atoms. Seemingly, then, this suggests that there will be soon, if we keep looking for new elements, stable isotopes of very heavy elements in this so-called island of stability, where their number of neutrons and protons are almost equal. What will these elements look like? What will their chemistry be? Well, very excitingly, they have extremely large electron orbitals. What this means is that they can bond to many different things at once. So while carbon only has four open bonding sites, these heavier elements may have as many as 8 or 14 depending on the orbital configuration of their electrons. Even more interestingly, these atoms will be extremely dense because their neutron even more interestingly, these atoms will be extremely dense and heavy because their nucleus is so filled with protons and neutrons. This means that we could make very thin sheets, say, of something like an aluminum foil using these heavy atoms that might be able to stop solar radiation or act as a shield against bullets, depending on the thickness and the way that it interacts with elements hitting it. So really, this search for new elements might end up coming out with a whole new branch of chemistry of these super heavy elements and resulting in properties that we don't really have present on the Earth to this point. That's the end of this episode. I want to thank once again the listeners, without whom this whole thing would be for nothing. Please send any comments or questions to the Mad Scientist Podcast at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. hot summer night in 1988, Jane Borowski was stabbed 27 times by an unknown man. She was seven months pregnant. My name is Jane Borowski. I survived, and I remember everything. Jane is the lone survivor of a serial killer. I'm your host, Jennifer Amell, and this is Dark Valley. Join us in our search for America's unknown serial killer. Subscribe to Dark Valley, out now.